Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today we're going to do a special playoff episode on the first two rounds of the playoffs, which are almost fully wrapped up by the time we're recording this. So today I'm here with Andrew Buchanan. Andrew, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. It's great to be back on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And let's get started with the first round, obviously, and let's get started in the first round with Boston versus Chicago. And at the beginning, this series looked like it would be a real referendum on the Celtics as a team. They dropped the first two games at home to the Chicago Bulls. And even as Isaiah Thomas dealt with the awful situation with his sister, he still dropped 33 points in the first game, which they lost by four and still had a pretty decent performance in the second game. So things looked bad for the Celtics as they took the series to Chicago, and then Rajon Rondo went out with injury, and the Bulls proceeded to lose the next four games. So, Andrew, what were your thoughts on the effect that Rajon Rondo had on this series? That's a really great question, obviously the one that's been asked a lot, because their backup point guards are Jerry and Grant, Michael Carter Williams, Isaiah Cannon. You know, th- none of those are really should be getting more than 10 minutes in a game. And so going for Rondo, who, you know, makes all of his teammates better. He plays really great defense and he puts his mind to it. So when he went down, you know, the whole Bulls team got worse. And it wasn't just that the point guard position kind of thing, too. Uh, th- that being said, I think that the Celtics kind of realized that, hey, we're the one seed. You know, we won 50 plus games in the regular season. And we're not going to get knocked out in the first round. And I think they kind of rallied together and, and would have won those. They would have won the series, I think, regardless of whether or not Rondo was back. I think that's a really important point about the backup point guards, because it's not just that Rajon Rondo was having a really positive effect on the series. It's that the guys behind him just are not playoff caliber starting point guards. Exactly. And at some point... You know, even if you have a league average or below league average starting point guard, there's a big dip between that caliber of player and Jerry and Grant and Michael Carter Williams. But we also shouldn't forget that Jimmy Butler had a really solid series and especially carried the Bulls after Rondo went down. He finished the series with 22.7 points per game, 7.3 rebounds, 4.3 assists, and 1.7 steals per game. So those are actually a little bit below his numbers for the season, which was somewhat troubling, but there's also a degree to which Dwayne Wade just completely disappeared, especially in the last two games of that series, and Butler was sort of all on his own against a team that, even if it might not have been the strongest one seed we've ever seen, was still a one seed facing an eight seed. But let's move on to a series that was both closer and also a sweep. And that is the Cavaliers opening round series against the Indiana Pacers. So the Cavs did sweep this series, but the total scoring margin across all four games was only plus 16 for the Cavs, which is the closest sweep in the playoffs ever. And that I think is worth mentioning, especially in light of what the Cavs did in the second round. But one thing that I thought was worth noting in this series is that Kyrie Irving just had an awful opening round against the Pacers. He shot only 22% from three-point range, which looks particularly bad in light of how excellent the rest of the Cavs were from deep. And 
it also obscures the fact that Irving took more three-point shots than everybody else. He also averaged only three assists a game and two and a half turnovers a game. And Jeff Teague shot a 64.2% true shooting percentage, which for reference is near Steph Curry levels of efficiency. And he averaged twice as many assists as Kyrie and on fewer turnovers. So what were your thoughts on Kyrie in this series? Do you think it was just that he struggled to open the playoffs or do you think there's something more there? That's definitely a good narrative that's been kind of buried because it was a sweep and because LeBron, you know, kind of carried the team. But Kyrie just, he struggled for seemingly, you know, kind of the first time in the playoffs. Last year, the, the narrative surrounding Kyrie was he was clutch and he made all these clutch buckets, which he certainly did in the finals. So I think it was just kind of an anomaly, honestly. I don't think it really meant anything. Maybe, you know, Jeff Teague isn't a terrible defender. He's long, he's lanky, and maybe he, you know, disturbed Kyrie's ability to, to make shots. But like you said, three assists as well. He, he wasn't himself, and it was really strange kind of to watch that, despite everyone else on the Cavs, you know, playing up to their standards. The other important thing in this series, beyond the Cavs, surprisingly, actually, I think, losing the point guard matchup, was just how incredible Paul George was in this series. 28 points a game, nearly nine rebounds a game, a little over seven assists per game to lead the team. He's not really been a primary playmaker for this team before, but he was during this series, even with Teague having a solid four games alongside him. And Paul George nearly carried this team to a couple of wins by himself. And the only issue for Paul George was that the guy across from him was still better. I mean, LeBron still had a better series, even though... Paul George had an all-NBA caliber opening round of the playoffs. I mean, Paul George, he's so inconsistent during the regular season, but uh, consistently during the playoffs, so his show-off, I didn't even, wow, 28-9-7, that is, that's an incredible line, and wow, yeah, it, it sucks for Paul George, because he's going to be one of those guys, you know, that constantly falls to LeBron James in the playoffs, despite how, you know, how good he is, and how he is, you know, one of the top five players in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, it wasn't just a playoff thing either for George. He really turned up his level of play sort of after the All-Star break. As the season wound down, maybe he knew how important making an All-NBA team would be to his contract future. Right. But let's move on from that series to the playoff series for your team, the Milwaukee Bucks. Yep. And Toronto started off the series on a pretty bad note with their usual game one opening loss. They won the next game by six points after dropping the opener by 14. And yep. then they shot 33.8%, not from deep, from the floor in their 104 to 77 game three loss. So people have been talking a lot about the Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan backcourt, especially in light of their second round series. But I thought Giannis was the best player on the floor in this series already, even though Lowry is coming off a couple of all-NBA teams and DeMar DeRozan just had the best season of his career. So what were your thoughts on Giannis, not only how he developed over the course of the season, but what he showed during this Bucks playoff run? He definitely showed a lot. His one weakness, and pretty much the only thing that he did 
poorly in the postseason against his free throw percentage, which is 54.5% compared to his regular 77%. But outside of that, he averaged 25 points per game, 9.5 rebounds, and 4 assists. Not quite Paul George levels, but that's still, you know, at the age of 22, his ability to come out against a playoff team that has been there, you know, three, four years in a row and absolutely kind of dominate from the get-go was very good and heartening to see as a Bucks fan. To see uh, a 22-year-old guy, you know, just do whatever he wanted to do on the court. And however impressive he was on the offensive end, I think he was at least as impressive on the defensive end. And I think the uniqueness of Giannis can't really be understated, but I think the area where that's really going to show over the next few years is on the defensive end where he's tall enough to check pretty much anyone on a switch and he's already Milwaukee's best rim protector. But the one thing that will keep getting repeated over and over and over and over again until either something changes or he becomes good enough at everything else that it doesn't matter is that he just doesn't have a jump shot yet. And no matter how incredible he is at getting to the rim and scoring where he led the NBA in scoring in the paint, on drives this year, mm-hmm. he just doesn't have that jump shot ready. And that was incredibly evident in their last game where he was wide open from three to tie the game. And instead of taking it, he just ran in for a dunk for a quick two, which basically ended Milwaukee's season. Yeah, that was that was tough to watch. Yeah, I mean, we, we could talk about Giannis, you know, for days and, and days, but I think Outside of Giannis, you know, you see a lot of growth from these other guys on the Bucks, like Don Maker, who, you know, really kind of cemented himself as a, a person that you got to watch out for. You know, two, three years down the line, he had an insane amount of blocks and you know, highlight blocks all the time. And he was shooting confidence from three. He was finishing around the rim. And as a rookie, to be doing stuff like that, along with Malcolm Brogdon, you know, it's tough not, It's tough to be too upset at a first-down ball by this team because there were so many good signs of you know, every aspect. It's also important to note, I think, just how far ahead of schedule this team is, not to mention the fact that they managed to make it to the playoffs and the sixth seed after pretty much no one projected them made it to the playoffs <laughs> at all. And that happened despite missing Chris Middleton for most of the season and then Jabari Parker going down in the game that Middleton returned to the lineup. Yep. So Milwaukee was... I don't want to say lucky because really it was just because Giannis made a massive leap this year, but I don't think Milwaukee was supposed to be this good this season. And that is really scary going forward, just how good they were, even without one of their best young players on the floor and with Giannis still only being 22, about to turn 23 and Parker still in his early twenties, Fawn not even turned 20 yet. I mean, this team's got a lot of room to grow. Yep. And they definitely showed what they can be in this series against Toronto. But let's move on to the last opening round series in the Eastern Conference, which was Washington's opening round series against Atlanta. And mm-hmm. that series was actually pretty close, even though the Wizards ended up taking it in six. There were really only two blowouts in the series, and each team had one. So it wasn't like Washington just closed out the series with a couple of blowouts. Right. I think the single most important player in this series was Paul Millsap. Even after all the trash talk that he got from Markeith Morris for whatever reason, Millsap just beat him down on both ends. 
Millsap averaged a little over 24 points a game, a little over nine rebounds a game, a little over four assists per game, nearly two steals a game. Millsap is still somehow a really underrated defensive player, and Washington just didn't have an answer for him. And honestly, Atlanta could have pulled out this series if they'd gotten just a little bit better of performances from a couple of players on their roster, but most notably Dwight Howard, who absolutely disappeared down the stretch of this series. Yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right. Paul Millsap continues to be, you know, one of my favorite players to watch because he kind of does everything right, kind of like a, you know, a Tim Duncan. You know, he's not going to be flashy or anything like that, but, you know, he plays great defense, can knock down a three, he can post you up, he's a decent facilitator, that kind of thing. But what was interesting was I expected John Wall to absolutely blow Dennis Schroeder out of the water in this series, but, you know, Schroeder held his own, and he, he was definitely the second-best player on the Hawks series, if not, you know, better than Paul Millsap. They were both extremely effective, and the only reason why uh, the series did, you know, go to six games. So I was surprised by that. Yeah, I was definitely surprised by it as well, and I don't mean this as a way to denigrate Schroeder, but kind of also showed that John Wall really isn't putting in his maximum defensive effort this season, especially after he made an all-defensive team a couple of years ago. Dennis Schroeder might have had the best six games of his career in this series. He averaged nearly 25 points a game and nearly eight assists per game. And even though Wall had a pretty awesome series in his own right, he shouldn't be allowing Schroeder to have that kind of a series. That being said, though, I think this series really puts Schroeder in a lot more positive light, especially after somewhat of a breakout season in his first year as a starter. He looked really good in this series, and he's been in the league for a while, so it's hard to remember that he's actually not even 24 years old yet. So the Hawks have to be really happy with what they saw from Schroeder in this series, even though they couldn't pull out the win. I worry about this Atlanta team now, because now I kind of felt like this was their last year to maybe get to that you know, semi-conference finals, Eastern Conference finals kind of thing. And especially if Paul Millsap leads, I don't really know what the direction this team is going to be. With a Dwight Howard that's on the wrong side of 30, and their only real young pieces being like Corey and Prince and Schroeder and kind of Kent Bazemore, who actually regressed this year, as well as having to sign, re-sign Tim Hardaway Jr. Like, that's a lot of cap space that they're going to fill up with average or above average role players that, you know, will never, they'll never really be able to take that step unless Dennis Schroeder all of a sudden becomes the second coming of Russell Westbrook. The other big problem on that front, Millsap is probably going to get a contract that's close to his five-year max, mm-hmm. either that or a four-year deal from another team. Right. And while I think people will still underrate Millsap just overall, it's going to be a real problem towards the end of that contract where he's 36, 37 years old. And While I still think he'll be a useful player at that point, you're relying a lot on him staying healthy, and you're relying a lot on him not regressing to the point of most 37-year-old undersized power forwards. But let's move on to the Western Conference and the opening round series between the Warriors and the Trailblazers. This was a massacre. The Warriors won by an average of 18 points. But the one thing that I think is important to note is that even though he was clearly still hurt while he was on the floor, Yusuf Nurkic was actually really helpful for the Blazers. And the Blazers were plus eight with Nurkic on the floor in less than 17 minutes during game three. Game three was also by far the closest game of the series. 
The Warriors trailed by 13 at halftime and only won the game by six. And I think that's a really, really good sign for Portland. Just in addition to the fact that they were 14 and six down the stretch with Nurkic in the lineup, he makes such a big difference for this team just to have a big guy in the paint to crash the glass and occasionally get buckets as a third option alongside Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. So I thought they were a little worse than their record last year. And I think they're a lot better than what their record ended up being this year, just because of how much this team changed when they got Nurkic from Denver. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. But again, Portland is kind of that, you know, same area that the Hawks are in, right? Because next year they're going to have to give a max to Nurkic probably. And they're going to have zero cap space to move. So the question comes again, you know, who's going to step up? And I think we saw, I think it was in game three, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum just were playing it out of their minds. It seemed any shot they were putting up was going in. And I think this Trailblazers team next year, I think CJ and Dane, as weird as it sounds, they're going to take another step and they're going to become even better. And they could be, you know, the fourth seed next year or something like that. And potentially challenge this Warriors team, especially if their bench stays, you know, decent and Alan Crabb continues to improve and Evan Turner continues to improve. The Warriors' big problem is the bench, and if the Trailblazers can build a solid bench, they can really, you know, harass that Warriors' second unit. To be fair, the Warriors do still have Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston coming off the bench, mm-hmm. so they did lose a lot of depth with the Kevin Durant signing, there's no doubt about that, but I think they still have the pieces to have a pretty decent backup group. But let's move on to San Antonio versus Memphis, and... I don't think anyone is going to remember any of the games in this series as much as they're going to remember David Fisdale's press conference after game two. <laughs> but the Grizzlies really strung together a solid performance, even though the Spurs pretty handily outscored them throughout the series. Right. The Grizzlies had a solid game three, and then that really awesome game four overtime win where Mike Conley basically carried the team for 52 minutes and 30 seconds and then let Marcus all hit the game winning shot. I really like Mike Conley and he continues to be extremely underrated, which is really funny because he's always talked about how underrated he is. Um, and it's series like these where when he's uh, it's put on the big stage, the whole whole country to see him. He, he shows up and he performs and he definitely outperformed Tony Parker and Patty Mills by a long shot, which, you know, having those two guys guarding you definitely helps a little bit because not much defenders, but he he really stepped up, and I think he can be a central piece for them to build around and try and get younger and, and uh, take that next step in the next coming years. It's too bad that he plays in the Western Conference during this particular era of basketball, because otherwise, if he were in the East, he would have at least two or three All-Star games to his name. Oh, yeah. So, let's move on to... Probably the most anticipated series of the first round that ended up being pretty much a dud, which was Rockets Thunder. And the Rockets closed this out in five games. Even though there were a couple of close contests, really the series ended pretty quickly. And Russell Westbrook was incredible for the first three quarters of every game. Mm -hmm. And then just disastrous during the fourth quarter. He shot 28.6 percent from the floor in the fourth quarter and took nearly 10 shots per game in the fourth quarter during that series 
So there's an element to which the Thunder's supporting cast didn't really step up besides Andre Roberson, who secretly had a really great series despite his free throw troubles. But I don't know. It's hard to blame this all on OKC's supporting cast when Westbrook was shooting so terribly in the fourth and so consistently, frequently in the fourth. I mean, 10 shots per quarter on average is unheard of. And game two, where he had a 50-point triple-double, which was, you know, on the positive ledger, but shot four of 18 in the fourth quarter. Right, and that's kind of what you're going to get. I think with Ross, you know, you're going to get Super Saiyan Ross, who's just insanely good, or you're going to get shot-happy Ross, who's going to shoot you out of the game. And what he needs to do is try and incorporate his other teammates because it's tough to stand around watching one guy do all the work and then when the ball comes to you, expect to be ready because anyone who's played basketball knows that you sit on the bench for a long time, you come in, you're cold, uh, you're not touching the ball much and then you're expected to put up a shot. It's a lot harder when you're not in the rhythm of the game and I think Russ takes a lot of his teammates out of the rhythm of the game while while Harden will you know, encourage his teammates to kind of do their thing or he'll create for them, he'll keep them involved. But if Russ is able to, to kind of, you know, incorporate his teammates more next year, then they can, they can definitely be a better team. They can definitely take the next year. All right, let's move on to the last series of the first round, which was also the best series of the first round. Mm-hmm. The 4-5 matchup between the Los Angeles Clippers and the Utah Jazz. So when Rudy Gobert went down with about 11 minutes and 45 seconds left of the first quarter of Game 1, Mm-hmm. I just assumed the Clippers would take this series because Gobert is pretty important to the Jazz on the offensive end and critical to their success on the defensive end. But the Jazz managed to hold it together for long enough such that Gobert got healthy. And then, of course, the Clippers lost Blake Griffin at about the same time. And it's funny because everybody thinks of Blake as an offense-first player, but I think the Clippers missed him a lot more on the defensive end than the offensive end because they had to sub in Mo Spates for Blake's minutes, which, while Mo is a downgrade from Blake offensively, obviously, he's a lot bigger of a downgrade on the defensive end than Blake, who's secretly gotten a lot better on the defensive end over the past couple seasons. And I think that made a huge difference in the series. I think the other thing about Gobert's return is that even though Derek Favors had solid games in two out of the three games with Gobert out, the Clippers in the first three games shot 64 of 87 from within five feet of the basket, and then they were 9 of 18 from that range in game four and never really attacked the basket with the same ferocity when Rudy Gobert was in. Yeah, I mean, obviously when Gobert's replacement is, I guess, Derek Favors or Jeff Withy. You know, you're not even going to come close to the defensive production that he can give you. And I think Gobert is, you know, the number one most important player on the Jazz, even more so than Gordon Hayward, because he can just do so much on the defensive end and is a huge plus on the offensive end as well. I really like the Clippers as much as it pains me to say this, because I've always, you know, rooted for CP3 to succeed, and I think he can make his teammates so much better. But I think it's time for the Clippers to, you know, move on. I think it's time to, because if they can't beat Utah, who's, you know, an up-and-coming team, this Clippers team's not getting any younger. And Griffin keeps getting injured, and Paul keeps getting injured. And without those two guys, you know, this team has little chances of competing, which we saw in this series, obviously, with Griffin going down. 
and CPT not being able to pick up that load, along with DeAndre Jordan, who's probably the most consistent star role player you'll ever see. But this was an entertaining series, for sure. Seeing Gordon Hayward prove to the rest of the world that he deserves this max contract he's going to get the offseason uh, was very entertaining, especially entertaining to watch in the second round, which we'll talk about later. I do want to push back on the Chris Paul point just for a second, because he had an awesome series overall. He averaged a little over 25 points just a hair under 10 assists and five rebounds per game. And that counts his really poor game seven performance, which again, I don't really think it's fair to blame him entirely for that because he carried the Clippers through the rest of this series. Even when Blake was on the floor, he didn't play all that fantastic in the first couple games. And Chris Paul really carried them up until game seven. And I think the thing that flies under the radar here is that because their Game 7 was an early Sunday game, there was about 36 hours between Game 6 and Game 7, and pretty quickly after the first quarter, it became clear that Chris Paul was just gassed, that he couldn't carry the team on both ends, really, because he continues to be one of the best defensive guards in the league. And I think we will talk about this with James Harden in a minute, too. At some point, having one guy carry the team that completely in a playoff series, eventually guys will just get worn out. But let's move on to the second round, and we'll start once again in Eastern Conference. And we're going to start with the only series that is still ongoing as we record this on Saturday morning, number one seeded Boston Celtics versus number four Washington Wizards. And the home team has won each of the first six games, and through the first six games, the total point margin of the series is a three-point advantage, a whopping three-point advantage over six games to the Wizards. Yeah, wow. I mean, this is honestly... San Antonio Houston is the only other non-sweet series, but to me, this has been by far the most entertaining series in the second round. It's not even close. Seeing seeing the John Wall versus Isaiah Thomas duel, seeing Bradley Beal, you know, really step up, as well as Avery Bradley, who has been absolutely, you know, killing it for the Celtics and has, you know, kept them in games like uh, he did in game six or, you know, game five where he went off for 29 points in, in the first half, stuff like that. That's That frightens me for next year, you know, seeing if he, he can, can sustain that level of play because he's always been a stellar defender and he's done an incredible job on John Wall. But if he can, you know, sustain that, that level of play, he might surpass Isaiah Thomas as that most important player on Boston. So I'm not the right person to have this conversation with because I am incredibly biased in favor of Isaiah Thomas and have been since he played for the Kings. But I don't think it's really fair to say that Avery Bradley has any chance of passing Thomas for the best player on the Celtics just because Thomas is obviously a bad defender. Yeah. And even the biggest Isaiah Homer can't really ignore the fact that he's not good on the defensive end of the floor. But given the team that Boston has with Bradley and Marcus Smart off the bench as incredible guard defenders, I think his poor defense matters a little bit less than it usually would. And Brad Stevens has done a great job of hiding Isaiah during this series. But before game six, and Isaiah didn't have a great game six, but saw a pretty solid game six by the end of it. He was averaging over 27 points a game, over six assists a game on 48% from the floor, 47% from deep, and 81% from the free throw line. I mean, he is such an offensive force, and 
the Wizards all series long have been sending two guys at him pretty much any time he has the ball. And yeah, that's although true. that's cut down on his scoring over the last four games of the series after his ridiculous Game 2 performance, Isaiah's still been incredible. But that also understates the fact that John Wall has proven that he's the best point guard in the Eastern Conference in this series. I mean, that game winner last night was absolutely incredible, especially since he's been shooting 26.3% on pull-up threes during the playoffs. <laughs> but, I mean, 26 points a game, over 10 assists a game, nearly two and a half steals a game, nearly two blocks a game, yeah. including that crucial block on Thomas late in the game. Yeah. Wall had a great opening round series, and he's just turned it up to another level in this series. Not to mention that his trash talk game is probably number one for these playoffs behind maybe LeBron's beer drinking, ball spinning, oh. utter disrespecting of the Toronto Raptors, which we'll yes. get to in a minute. But one other thing that I wanted to point out before we move on, the Wizards starters have a net rating of plus 18.9 for the series, but the Wizards have only led by three total points across the six games. And the reason for that is that their bench may be one of the worst playoff benches I've ever seen. And that includes the fact that their bench was really pretty significantly upgraded at the trade deadline by adding Boyan Bogdanovich. But, I mean, watching Brandon Jennings try and run an offense is has gotten to the point where it's actually painful. Yeah, it is. He can do absolutely nothing except for pass the ball. Like, anytime he throws up a shot, you fully expect it to miss. It's ugly. It's very ugly. And Kelly Oubre has done nothing for this in these playoffs. The only guy off the bench, oh, I guess Jan Mihimi is kind of productive. He had some crucial blocks late in game six. But Boyan, you know, for the most part, has pulled his weight. And he's the only one off the bench really to be fair. To be fair to Kelly, he did score all of the Wizards points in the overtime against the Celtics. And yeah. he also shoved Kelly Olenek, and I think it was Jeff Van Gundy who said that it was the first time that he'd seen someone flop during a basketball fight, which yeah. is says a lot about the Celtics. Also says a lot about Olenek, who, honestly, the Celtics have been pretty heavily defending him as, oh, he's just a goofy guy, he's not a dirty player, but he shoved Ubre, like literally shoved Ubre in the face on a couple of those screens. He also just brutally undercut John Wall on one play where yeah. Wall was already airborne and Kelly just basically cut blocked him in the air. So I'm kind of tired of Celtics brass defending Kelly as just sort of a goofy guy because he's done a lot of questionable things. And the stat of, oh, he's never gotten a flagrant foul or been ejected from a game before. Sure, that's nice, but... It also says a lot about how he's officiated that he literally pulled Kevin Love's arm out of his socket and didn't even get a flagrant foul. Yeah, that was terrible. Speaking of Kevin Love, let's move on to Cleveland versus Toronto. Yes. And this was this was kind of sad, honestly. We could honestly just say LeBron, you know, annihilated the Raptors and leave it at that and move on, but because this this series was horrendous. I tried to watch some of the games, and I couldn't get through them because LeBron would just brutalize the Raptors at any turn. Seeing Serge Ibaka try and guard him, seeing Jamari Carroll try and guard him, P.J. Tucker, it didn't matter who you threw at him because even if you double teamed him, he would always find the open man, and they'd always knock it down because Channing Frye is 
insane in the playoffs. Kyrie Irving did a lot better in this series than he did in the opening round. He still didn't shoot very well, but he took on a lot more of a playmaking role during this series and was a lot more effective because of it. I think that there's a chance, and emphasis on chance here, that the Raptors could have taken Game 4 if Kyle Lowry was healthy. Lowry had yet another pretty bad playoffs, as did DeMar DeRozan, (laughs) which is troubling as Toronto heads into the offseason, with Lowry certainly not being anywhere near as vocal as DeMar was about wanting to return to Toronto. But just purely based on his defense, even assuming that his offense would be shaky because he's got a history of shaky offense during the playoffs, I think Cal Lowry could have helped them at least make one of the two games in Toronto slightly more competitive. Yeah, I I mean, Kyle Lowry, he's obviously an all-star point guard, and not trying to take anything away from him, but he's 31, you know, again, we talked earlier about Paul Millsap and him getting a five-year deal, and same thing with CP3, who's obviously a point guard than Kyle Lowry, but if Kyle Lowry gets his deal, you know, does he deserve it after these playoffs? I may say no. I think he is probably the Raptors' most important player, even more so than DeMar DeRozan, because he can facilitate, play really good defense, shoot, score, that sort of thing. And they definitely felt his presence missed, especially on the defensive end, like you said with Kyrie Irving. When you're being guarded by Corey Joseph compared to to Kyle Lowry, you know, you're going to have a much better series comparatively. There isn't really much more to say about this beatdown other than shout out to the beer that LeBron almost drank (laughs) and shout out to him spinning the ball in Serge Ibaka's face like he was a fifth grader on the second grade playground just messing with people. But let's move on to another sweep in the Western Conference with the Warriors taking the Jazz out in four games. And the thing that I think was most telling about this series was Game 3, when Clay Thompson was awful. He had six points on nine shots. Mm-hmm. And Steph Curry was four of 18 before the fourth quarter, where he was two for two, including two threes and a bunch of free throws. But... The Warriors still won this game going away because Kevin Durant had 38 points and 13 rebounds. And the thing about that game was not just that Durant scored so much, but that only two of his shots came in the restricted area. He was scoring almost all of his points by just isolations in the mid-range. And, you know, last year when Steph and Clay both had miserable nights like they had, the Warriors would have had no chance of winning because... You can't expect Harrison Barnes to go off for 38 and 13. But Durant, I'm not sure he's really entirely integrated into the Warriors' offense yet. He still runs a lot of isolation plays, which normally is an issue just because isolation plays are less efficient. But in the playoffs, when defenses tighten up, those isolation plays become slightly more important. And when you can have such a poor night from your MVP and still get another former MVP to put up nearly 40 points. It's hard to imagine anybody stopping these guys, because you shouldn't be able to win a game by double digits when Curry and Thompson play that badly. No, you, you really shouldn't. And when you have the second and third best player you know, in the NBA, it's tough to lose, because maybe Steph's off, KD, you know, KD's going to be off one of these times, and I'm sure Steph and Clay will step up. 
it's not fair. And the biggest thing about KD and his mid-range game is that that completely took Gobert out of the defensive series because Gobert didn't want to come that far out. You know, he likes to live in the paint, block shots there. But with KD just able to rise up and fire, you know, that completely neutralized the threat of Gobert's defender, which was huge because Utah relies on Gobert essentially to be their anchor to help them hold opponents under 100 points, which obviously you can't do when KD's knocking down mid-range shots in the same percentage. We also have to mention Draymond Green for just mm. how incredible he's been in the playoffs in general. And there's an element to which not having Steve Kerr around is obviously a blow to the Warriors, but it has unleashed this completely unrestrained version of Draymond where he'll just destroy teams on defense and help the Warriors ball movement immensely by being the incredible passer that he is for the big man role. Green is tied for the second highest win shares per 48 number with the aforementioned LeBron James. And putting Boris Diaw against Draymond Green is as close to the basketball version of surrender as I can imagine. And Draymond had the lowest defensive rating in the playoffs by far, according to basketball reference. And it makes sense. I mean, he is the best help defender in basketball. I think that's pretty tough to argue. And the number of times I have watched Draymond shut down a two-for-one fast break, which should be guaranteed points for the opponent, it's truly remarkable. And I don't remember where I heard this, but someone was discussing the other day the notion that Draymond is a lot higher on the list of players you want to start a franchise with than everybody thinks. And I kind of buy that because, honestly, we like to talk about the players that stand out in the box score, the guys that can put up a ton of points, but an 85 to 75 win is just as much of a win as an 120 to 110 win. And if you put Draymond Green on any team in the league, I think he alone can make your defense top 10, even if you have nothing around him in terms of defensive talent. And having Draymond Green, honestly, I think is the most unfair part of the Warriors because people are upset that Durant went to the Warriors and that's totally fair, but that was due to just a completely unprecedented, massive spike in the cap. But getting a second-team All-NBA player who I think should be the Defensive Player of the Year this year and was second each of the last two years, getting that guy with the 35th overall pick is maybe, honestly, luckier than anything else the Warriors have done. And I actually want to backtrack that because... I don't think that's right. The most unfair thing that's happened to the Warriors is that they got Steph Curry on an $11 million a year contract. <laughs> the Warriors have been he's so incredibly lucky. Like, the cap spike at the right time, you know. Well, not even necessarily lucky, you know. You have to give a lot of credit to the playoff, the foresight to take Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, you know, obviously Draymond Green with the 35th pick, and then tell them, just go out there and go succeed, right? And and Draymond, you know, has been a huge part. He's he's definitely my favorite warrior to watch, just because he can he can you know he's their best rim protector. He's got he plays with this intensity and this fire that you just don't see a whole lot anymore. And you know, obviously there's his natural kicking motion and and obviously downsides, but he's kind of that throwback guy, you know, who can do it all, and it's incredible. He's he's everything that a, a team wants and the boy. You're right that. It's unfair to say that the Warriors just got lucky because their player development has been excellent and their drafting has been excellent. But 
with Draymond, he really only got minutes because David Lee happened to get hurt coming out of preseason a couple years ago. And the fact that he nearly didn't get playing time is kind of staggering. But I think the other important factor in this series is that George Hill was out for the last two games. And I honestly think that Utah would have won game three had George Hill played because even though Durant had that masterful performance, Steph played as poorly as he did with Shelvin Mack guarding him. I don't even want to think about how he would have done against an incredible defensive player like George Hill. Not to mention that Mack went 3-11 from the floor, and especially given just how efficient George Hill is, I think the Jazz really would have had a good chance at taking Game 3 if he'd been able to play. But instead, we have to talk about how Durant just single-handedly took this team to victory. And you mentioned this when we were discussing the first-round series, but... Gordon Hayward is going to get a max contract this offseason, and I thought he was worth it before these playoffs, but if there was anyone out there, as you said, that didn't think he was worth that contract before these playoffs, I mean, other than game four of the opening round where he had food poisoning and played nine minutes and wasn't really all that effective, he averaged 26 points a game, a little over 26 points a game, actually, six and a half rebounds per game and almost four assists per game. And he's also gotten so much better on the defensive end. He's really a menace on the wing just because he's big for a wing. And I think people tend to, especially in this series, not really realize that because he's guarding a guy who's seven feet tall and somehow plays small forward. But Hayward is a big wing and he's quick enough to keep up with pretty much anyone on the perimeter. So I also agree with you that Rudy Gobert is their most important player, which I think is not the general consensus, but I don't mean that in any way as a knock against Gordon Hayward because he's been incredible for the last couple of years and particularly this year, especially with how much he turned up his performance in the playoffs. And Utah's going to have an interesting offseason, especially with both Hill and Hayward testing the market. But if I'm either of those guys, I have to look at Rudy Gobert's offensive improvement during this season. And then remember that he's still only 24. And when I see both of those things, if I'm either of those guys, I want to sign on the dotted line and stay in Utah because, man, Gobert's already a killer and he's just going to keep getting better. Gobert's like the most important player and Hayward's like the most talented, right? So, you know, it's tough to say. They're both equally great kind of things, but Gobert, because of his position, because of his length, is more important to their immediate success overall. Yeah, I think it's just because center is so much more important of a defensive position than small forward. Exactly. And even though Hayward is a really, really good defender now, he's not in the running for defensive player of the year like Gobert is. And it's possible that Gobert wins it. And I wouldn't be all that upset by it because he had a great defensive year. I just happen to think that Draymond's ability to play literally everybody on the defensive end of the floor is just ever so slightly more important. All right, let's move on to the last series of the first two rounds. The San Antonio Spurs versus the Houston Rockets. And wow, I mean, four blowouts, an incredible game five, and then just the biggest dud performance 
that I think we will ever see out of the Rockets team. Their season low before Game 6 was 92 points. They put up 75 in Game 6. And, I mean, the thing is, a lot of this series early on was basically a battle between Houston's three-point shooting and San Antonio's rebounding. So, in the Spurs' first two blowout wins... Their offensive rebounding percentage was above 40%, which is unheard of. Yeah. In the Game 5 overtime win, it was 32%. And in Game 6, where, you know, they weren't offensive rebounding much because they didn't miss all that many shots, they still rebounded 34% on the offensive glass. Right. On the other hand, during their two losses to the Rockets, they were at 24% offensive rebounding and 20.8% offensive rebounding. On the other side... The Rockets made 11, 12, and 13 threes in their big blowout losses, 16 in the overtime loss, and 22 and 19 in their two blowout wins. So that battle between San Antonio's rebounding and Houston shooting really told the tale of this series. But, I mean, wow, that game six was... Bad. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Bad is a lot better. I, I felt like I would be nice and go with interesting. <laughs> no, retell it how it is. It was tremendous. It was ugly. It was pitiful. Yeah. Ooh, that was, that's not what I think anyone expected from, you know, James Harden at all. But it, you can kind of see it at the end of game five. He played terrible in that overtime period. I think he was 0 for 1 with 3 turnovers and would consistently dribble side to side, you know, 10 feet behind the 3 point line for 28 seconds and then call for a screen and throw up a wild 3 pointer or turn the ball over. And they only lost that game by 3. And had they, you know, run their offense like they normally did, gotten those open three pointers, that should have been a, like a three point win instead. So that was really, really strange to see and definitely a bad uh, indicator for game six especially because he was at home. But a big thing that's been talked about a little bit was the injury to Dene that really threw the rest of the second unit off because all of a sudden, Brian Anderson is your backup center and James Harden is guarding, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge or Paul Gasol on defense. And I think that speaks a lot to the offensive rebounding percentages, like you said. When you have Clint Capella as your only valid rebounder, you're going to struggle on the boards. And especially with Ryan Anderson having to play that five spot more on defense, they, there was little chance for success. I was surprised that D'Antoni didn't go to Harrell because he had been, he had had very good games early in the year, but it is, you know, what it is, I guess, and they paid the price. Yeah, I f- totally agree with you that the Nene injury really changed things. It also narrowed Houston's rotation to basically seven players. And that brings up a point that we sort of got to earlier when talking about the Clippers, but people have been talking about James Harden's poor performance in a number of ways, and Stephen A. Smith notably said that he thought Harden looked like he'd been drugged out there, but I think he was just beat. I mean, that game five, that was an exhausting game, clearly, and they were so close, and they fell short in heartbreaking fashion, and then... I mean, D'Antoni discussed this in some of his exit interviews, that they need to look at resting Harden more come next season. I mean, Harden turned his ankle early in the playoffs. We're not entirely sure if he was ever completely right after that. He certainly looked a little off after that ankle injury, and he had a cold for a lot of this series. He was 
coughing on the sidelines during a lot of the games. And this is going to be a referendum for everybody who thought Russell Westbrook should have been MVP that, oh, Harden choked down the stretch. Russell never would have shot two for 11 in the closeout game. And, you know, Russell wouldn't have shot two for 11 because he would have shot eight for 44 instead. But, I mean, I think it's unfair to have this one game be a referendum on Harden after just how much he's played this year, how gassed he looked in that last game, and just the pileup of little nicks and bruises that he accumulated over the course of playing basically every game and playing major minutes in basically every game. It's also fair to note that Harden was not the only Rocket that played poorly in this game. Basically everybody besides Ariza, Capella, and Pat Beverly played just awful basketball in Game 6. But I don't think it's fair to knock Harden too heavily for this game. That being said, they lost by 39 to the Spurs at home without Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. And even though it's unfair to have this one game wipe out, you know, the other 90 that Harden's played this season, this was the worst possible time to basically just sleepwalk through an awful, awful game. I think a lot of us expected, you know, Houston to just run San Antonio out of the building. Like, oh, no Kawhi Leonard? They're going to score 130 points, right? No defense. But then they score 75 points and you give up 114, that's bad. That's very bad. And when, you know, Dejuante Murray, who was sat earlier in the series, is all of a sudden tearing it up, like, there's there's issues to be addressed, I think. And it, it, it speaks to the depth of San Antonio as well. The stellar coaching of Greg Popovich, he can get the most out of his guys. Even a rookie, you know, from the end of the bench, from, from Dejuante Murray to 39-year-old Manu Ginobili. All right, so anything else before we wrap up here? All right. Well, he is Andrew Buchanan. You can find him on Twitter at A-N-D-R-E-W-B-248. You can also find his work on the hashtag basketball website. You can also find my work on the hashtag basketball website, and you can follow me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. It really helps us to spread the word about this podcast. So if you've been enjoying it, that would be really awesome if you could do that. If you have any feedback about the podcast, positive, negative, neutral, anything, feel free to reach out to me. You can send me an email at nickaj.nba at gmail.com. Again, that's n-i-c-k-a-j.nba at gmail.com. So thank you for tuning in to this special playoff edition. And as always, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>